you ever get the opportunity to visit Linguini Lock, I'd recommend it with caution. There's a mountainside where you can see it from above, and what I saw when I went there made me a little dizzy. There's a lot of dense seaweed just below the surface, mix that with unpredictable currents and it means the green plant life flows and pulls into strange knots and patterns. They weave in and out of each other, like the lock is squirming, saturated by green snakes. Or, like the locals say, filled with mouldy linguine pasta. People have reported seeing the faces of loved ones in the shapes created by the seaweed. Others are haunted by their enemies, or see the numbers of the year they were born, along with the year they will die. Others pretend they can finally see the bus arriving on time. That's the first reason the lock was talked about. The second reason is that it was used as a testing ground for torpedoes before the war, those ones you don't hear about, and the odd few you hear about very loudly when a quiet wooden fishing shed explodes in mossy fireballs and wailing shrapnel. Then of course, you don't hear about them again. The lock was thirdly famous because the muscles there were really good. Which is why Robert Melville and his two daughters Diana and Harriet were strolling down along the shoreline that morning, their heads burrowed into their scarves, inspecting the sands and rocks with their boots. That day, the lock became famous for a fourth reason. Muscles from Linguini Lock were a best seller at the local pub. It was called the Ravendale. They were delicious, and people travelled in to try the famous dish they were served in, of course, Linguini Linguini. But that demand for something as simple as mussels in pasta pushed up the price of them. Those who lived nearby knew the secret. The same mussels washed up at the south end of the lock, far from the ropes and nets of the hazy, silhouetted fishermen out on the water wobbling around in his tiny wooden boat. Robert Melville and his two daughters wouldn't catch nearly as many as him of course, but properly washed and cooked, every shell would open up, and it wouldn't cost them anything. At this time of year it was typically grey, and a cloud had descended down over the water, hovering just above the surface. Diana was sifting the sand through her fingers by the water's edge, throwing any mussels she found into her father's old bucket, happy to let her small hands go pink in the icy water. Harriet was a little younger, so Robert gave her the job of cleaning the sand and weeds off the mussels so they sparkled nicely, just like in the Ravendale. The same process would happen when he washed them later, but it gave Harriet the job satisfaction she needed as a six-year-old. They couldn't have been down there for more than 20 minutes when Robert Melville heard a splash out in the water. He whipped his head up to see the same fisherman's boat they'd been watching, now rocking erratically, water fizzing on the surface. It seemed even those with the sturdiest sea legs occasionally fell out of boats, and the girls began giggling when they realised what had happened. It wasn't the warmest morning to be falling into the lock, and from some of the conversations Robert had been subjected to with some of the older fishermen, he couldn't help but feel one or two of them deserved some harmless misfortune. 
The boat was only a few hundred meters out in the water, but Robert still had trouble making out what was happening in the mist. From this distance, even squinting, it was hard to tell the difference between the waves and the bobbing of an embarrassed fisherman's head swimming back to his boat. That first sound was the only proper sighting Robert had seen of the man in the water, and he began to feel a little anxious. The boat didn't seem to be tipping as if a person was trying to clamber back over into it. In fact, not much was moving at all anymore. From the look on their father's face, the girls knew this was now serious. All three collected their things and Robert rushed them back towards the mossy steps where they'd come down to the lock. Robert presumed somebody at the nearby village had seen the man enter the water too. They would make their way round to get help for the man as fast as they could. Robert helped his daughters up the steps as patiently as possible, and at the top of the stairway he looked out again with the better vantage point. It was clear now nobody was in or anywhere near the boat, not even splashing nearby. Holding Harriet in his arms and dragging Diana behind him, they ran, glancing to see any signs of life from the water. They were still running when the man burst out from under the waves, and the Melvilles stopped to see. The shape was surprisingly close and blurred in the mist. He must have been tangled in the seaweed under the water and broken free. The sound was piercing. He was howling, the kind of wail a human only makes when they're genuinely fearful for their life, only muffled when he coughed up water and algae. His hands were mindlessly slapping the water around himself, trying to grab anything, and the shape of his head was barely breaking the surface. He was still knotted underwater. Robert sent the girls onwards to find help. The girls ran off sensibly, and Robert turned back. He ran down the steps, across the pebbled shore, took off his shoes, and with the mist swirling around him, he waded out into the icy ink. He knew if he jumped in headlong, he might get trapped in the same weeds the fisherman was caught up in. And so he went to save the man. The weeds whipped Robert's legs as he wriggled his way over to the man, who was still screaming desperately. Though Robert struggled to make much progress in the cold water and power his limbs forward through the knotted leaves, it felt like he was approaching the silhouette of the fisherman quickly. It was like the lock was helping him, the current spurring Robert forwards while separately drifting the fisherman towards him. Robert eventually managed to get near the man and reached out to grab his flailing hand. He knew then that something was wrong. The hand he made contact with didn't feel like skin. It was softer. When he squeezed it, it felt saturated with water, and he could feel the bones inside, pliable and weak. It was as if this man had been in the water for days, not minutes. As he grabbed him, the man fell completely still, and Robert moved forwards to speak with him. But what he found there was not the head of the fisherman. Bobbing in the water, now rotating back and forth slowly from left to right, was a translucent, fleshy, pale mass. Green capillaries wove through white flesh. It seemed to only have basic human features, Two completely black, wet eyes stared wide and open in panic to the sky. A toothless mouth 
depressed without lips, fell down from its face deep into a form of throat, where the wordless wailing was now just a meek, high release of air. Robert froze in fear. Peering down below the water, its neck didn't meet a body. The neck reached downwards like the soft stem of a plant, beyond the light Robert could see with. It was a head attached to an organic line that plunged down under his feet. He lifted the hand he was instinctively still grabbing and realised it was also completely detached from the head. Its arm was long and boneless and stretched down, like the head, into the depths. On pulling the hand out of the water, the bones inside went stiff. Robert jerked his hand away, but the hand didn't let go. Using both hands, he desperately pulled at the fingers to free himself, his screams muted by the water that washed over his head. It would not let go. The other hand now grabbed him round the neck and tightened its grip. Robert was now in silent terror. He saw with widened red eyes the head turn slowly towards his, the expression still dead and unchanged, the eyes black and lifeless. Its mouth began to sink below the surface. Water poured up and over, down into its throat, and the air coming up choked, and the man went quiet. Unblinking, the two dark eyes sank under, and without much fight, the pale head retreated downwards. Whatever was at the bottom of the lock was gently calling them back, returning to dark secrecy with two victims that day. Robert Melville, now silent, was one of them. This was the first episode of Penny Fable. If you're the kind of strange person who enjoys these macabre tales, you can help us. Please consider subscribing, let us know what you thought in the reviews, and make sure your friends know where to find us. And the moral of this story? Don't be a penny pincher. Eat the mussels at the restaurant with everybody else. <laughs>